agility drills, what I do like about them is that they're very high force, high speed drills because they're predictable. And I'm sure, obviously, we'll, we'll get into, I'm sure, reactive agility and stuff that's more unpredictable like, like we did on the last episode I was on. But what I do like about those predictable drills is they're the highest force, highest velocity drills. So it's just like exposing someone to high-speed sprinting in many ways. It's an overload. So can they multi-directionally produce and absorb high forces and high velocities? So I, I definitely think you know there is something to be seen from doing those drills, whether they're the most specific or not. That was Scott Sawasser, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another show of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. It's great to have you all here, and we are on episode 200. I remember back to show 100 and I remember thinking of how much of an accomplishment that was and and well here we are at double that and eventually I think we'll be at 300 and 400 and however long we we keep doing this thing. So uh, anyways, uh, we have back on so in honor of uh, 200 episodes we actually are bringing back on the our original guest, our first guest on the show, Scott Sawasser. Scott has been a guest on the show a few other times. He's done some awesome talks on force velocity profiling. He was on a, a real like pinnacle um, agility roundtable and perception reaction and getting into that. And in that original show that we did, uh, I was almost thinking my, my intro was so awkward. I was almost thinking of like replaying that for you guys. But I don't know if you want to go listen to episode one, go go uh, listen to episode one and hear my my little bit of rambling and, and script reading to introduce Scott. But in, anyways, that's Scott Solicer, uh, in addition to being a prior 
podcast guest many times. He's written some awesome articles for Just Fly Sports. He's currently the assistant director of strength and conditioning for football at the University of South Carolina. Uh, Scott has worked as a sports performance coach for nearly two decades and has worked at a number of NCAA Division I universities, uh, ranging from assistant to head strength and conditioning coach for football. He's also been in the NFL as a strength coach and also in the private training sector. When it comes to training, Scott is, if I could say one word, it's grounded. Scott is able to take like a lot of complex ideas that are kind of up in the air, so to speak, and put it in a practical and grounded training method that he can really simply convey. For today's show, we're going to cover a few things. One, we're going to get into uh, how Scott's speed program has, uh, how Scott's speed program works for his the lineman that he works with. Uh, up until his job at South Carolina, Scott um, was known as a speed guy and, and primarily worked with skill players. And so now he's going to take us into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what he's doing with his linemen, as well as a lot of other topics. Uh, He's going to talk about force velocity profiling with them, but also just a lot of speed training paradigms. And we're also going to follow up on that agility perception reaction episode with going into the nuts and bolts of Scott's agility program, going from working from close to open chain and everything in between. There's a lot of really great practical insights in there. Finally, perhaps the most relevant, at least in terms of our own situation, what a lot of coaches are going to be facing in the near future, is going into Scott's past experience in which he was in a situation where a player was sick, like most of the spring, and had to get back really quickly in the summer to get ready to play football in the fall. And Scott's going to take us into some elements that he used to really go take a player from zero to 100 really fast using some different technological, um, using some different technology, using some different benchmarks and making sure this player was on the right track to be on the field. And it was really successful. And so uh, from speed work to agility to rapid reconditioning, if you will, this show covers a lot of ground. And Scott is a first class practical coach who's also a great guy to talk to. And so uh, we're going to get on to it. Last thing before we start the show, this is our 200th episode, and so in honor of that, if you head to the store at JustFlySports.com, all the books and webinars in the store are 20% off in honor of uh, episode 200. So, uh, And yes, we do have some webinars for sale now there as well, and so you can get your 20% off by typing in the code PODCAST200. That's PODCAST200, and that code is good till May 7th. All right, that being said, let's get on to the show, episode 200 with Scott Salwasser. Scott, man, it's good to have you back. It's been a while. No, I'm I'm excited to be back, man. I'm uh, after seeing, you know, who's been on this show over the over the years, man. I'm flattered to have been the first guest, and uh, I, I'm a fan of the show. In addition to being on it, man, so I'm I'm fired to get back together and talk shop. Yeah, guest guest numero uno. I, I've listened to that episode actually a couple times just to see how rough I was as a host. <laughs> the audio was so terrible and, and um, man, it's come a long way and, and it's good to, I know we, you came back for a little bit on that, that uh, agility. Uh, right. That was a great show too, but it's good to right, have you back right. as a solo guest. I, I'm excited to talk. I, I mean, where have you been? So last time you were at Texas tech, uh, where have you right. been since then? Right. So um, after Texas, tech, I was the director of speed and power at Texas tech for three years. Then I, was uh, the director of strength and conditioning um, at Texas State University. Um, And then I'm currently um, at University of South Carolina um, uh, assisting Paul Jackson, who I believe is probably the best in the business in my book. So it's a tremendous opportunity to utilize, obviously, my specialties and my abilities, you know, to to enhance what 
he's building there and it's an opportunity that I, I, I couldn't pass up and we've been trying to work together for a long time and uh you know it's it's a great opportunity for me to get even better yeah man it's always yeah the, that growth is is real and it's always uh yeah it's always good to grow over the years and uh it's i'm excited to talk about some changes too that I know you've been doing in terms of you being, you know, you've written some articles for just like sports in the past and done like speed, speed profiling. And now, now you're working with linemen. So tell me a little Correct. bit about that transition from the skill guys and being the speed guy to working with, I right. mean, obviously speed still a factor, but working with that. Group. Right. Right. No, it's, it's, uh, again, a tremendous opportunity for growth. I actually played defensive line. So I actually am a lineman, but, uh, over the years, you know, getting labeled as a quote unquote speed guy. The last few stops I've worked primarily with receivers and uh, defensive backs. So this is a tremendous opportunity, um, you know, at a SEC school where I'll be honest, some of these linemen move like receivers and defensive backs at other schools that I've, I've played at. You know, we're so blessed to have uh, tremendous athletes here, but uh, I really enjoy it. You know, I think that with that group, especially out on the field, uh, you get tremendous bang for your buck. You know, it's a position group that uh, oftentimes has not had a ton of formal training in speed development um, or movement training. Um, and it, it's a group that you get a lot of rewards early on without having to do a ton of um, highly high-end, you know, rocket science type stuff, you know, just some really basic stuff, coached well, programmed well. Um, will will yield a lot of rewards with these guys, you know, where if you have a skill guy and he's running a four, four, you know, you could do everything right and get him slightly better. But some of these linemen, you know, you can, you can't, you can still shave two tenths, three tenths off their 40 and things like that, you know? And, and obviously, you know, me and my philosophy, it's not just about the 40, but I think that uh, speed is one of those abilities like strength, like power that uh, is only going to enhance. It's one of those general abilities that will enhance everything else you do. So even these big guys, you know, the ability to accelerate and run correctly um, above all things is, is really an asset to them. So I think uh, training them um, in terms of the skill development of acceleration, of deceleration, things like that really enhances their game rather quickly um, compared to all the other position groups. Yeah, I remember it was this was back uh, around the time that we our first episode was. I had Boosh Nexiator on like maybe episode 18 and he had talked about something similar with do, having his uh, volleyball, a group of volleyball players doing maximal speed <laughs> sprinting or at least upright more than just, you know, the, the 10 or whatever yards they might maximally run in their game and and how it had a really positive impact on their their vertical jumping ability, and so I'm sure that 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 yeah, because like you said, like alignment isn't really running a forty in the game typically, very rarely, but that element still is going to help them out. Right. Well, two things. Number one, obviously, I mean, you've probably had I'm guest two hundred. I'm sure you've had two hundred guests talk about the neurological um, benefits of, of maximal speed sprinting. So obviously, we already know that. But also something that a lot of people don't think about is that uh, if a lot of times for conditioning, the linemen run for conditioning, you know, whatever that may be. So if they don't train to become more efficient, um, a more uh, correct uh, runner or sprinter, 
Um, and then they go condition. To me, that's counterintuitive. Like if you're going to ever run them, you know, like why, why would you not place an emphasis on quality as addition to quantity? You know, so that's one thing that we're uh, we really put an emphasis on is when our linemen are conditioning. You know, this is this is the same stuff like you, all those things that you learned when you were doing your speed development, your acceleration development, your top speed mechanics. I mean, this is the time to use them. Because now it's about efficiency. It's about um, maintaining posture. It's about um, utilizing that speed reserve. It's about uh, moving your body in a way repeatedly um, and being consistent with your technique and things like that. And, and you'll condition better. You'll move better. You'll stay healthy. Like we talked about before, you take thousands and thousands of steps, even if you're alignment. A lot of times you're running. Um, in addition to when you're conditioning. So the ability to run correctly um, is, to me, underrated in many other aspects than, than just the performance of a all-out linear sprint. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a few episodes ago, Dr. Nick Cerillo was talking about uh, the baseball pitchers that are the best can oftentimes running well, not necessarily fast, but just having good mechanics for those guys. Cause I mean, it's not like a pitcher is necessarily known for being a lightning sprinter, you know, that, but they, but the good pitchers right. could run well, like they can just, the coordination is there. And I was also thinking too, I hadn't mentioned it, but we've talked about this, just how crazy the combine has gotten with some of these forties for these big guys. I mean, that's to me, I, to me watching a big guy run a four, eight is a guy who weighs over 300 pounds run a four, eight is I, that's more impressive to me than watching a four two in many respects. I'm just like, holy, it's crazy. Right. Well, the, the combine now, I mean, it's down to such a science. I mean, like every single drill, we have the answers to the test now. So if, if a guy goes out and performs poorly at the combine or at the pro day, now it's almost like a red flag. Like, what have you been doing? Because, um, like I said, we have the answers to the test. I mean, if you train properly, we know exactly what the drills are going to be. We know even down to exactly how to move down to what steps to take to run the best times. I mean, there's no excuse now to not perform properly. Yeah. And I imagine, especially in something like, and we've talked about this too, like a pro agility versus, uh, actually being on the field. Like there's certainly uh, quite the massive difference between what you're doing in the combine and what actually happens. But I think you were saying that and we were, we were talking offline a little bit about how it is still important. Cause there at least, at least as a comparison, there's at least a comparison there, there's at least something on record to, to have versus just. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I think it, the it's good. It would be tough if they completely overhauled it. Even, even if you could argue like, okay, let's replace it with something more specific, but then you don't have a basis of comparison comparing years past to the current athletes, you know, and even, some of those agility drills, what I do like about them is that they're very high force, um, high speed drills because they're predictable. And I'm sure, obviously, we'll, we'll get into, I'm sure, reactive agility and stuff that's more unpredictable like, like we did on the last episode I was on. But what I do like about those predictable drills is they're the highest force, highest velocity drills. You know, so it's just like exposing someone to high speed sprinting in many ways. It's an overload, you know, so can they multidirectionally produce and absorb high forces and high velocities? So I, I definitely think, you know, there is something to be seen from doing those drills, whether they're the most specific or not, you know. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I was just thinking about this. Really, the last years when this has really hit is, I mean, both from my own on my own end as an athlete and, and some things I've experienced, like the highest I jumped off one leg in high school and really for even a couple of years into college was, I remember it was a period of time where, and it's hard to, to, to measure track season and high jump versus what I was doing in basketball, but it was a time period where we were doing, the coach had us just doing a ton of like suicide sprint, change of directions, you know, like run, touch the free throw line, touch the baseline, touch half court. And, 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 and Mac, not at like jog velocity, but he would get us all riled up and try to get me to race the other guys. And it was, that was almost like this, if you had Bonderchuk's pyramid and jumping off one leg was at the top or something like that, that change of direction sprint was actually higher in the transfer list than I think most people would give it credit for. I, and I've realized that I've actually brought that back in my own training, at least just for jumping. And I'm like, there's a lot to this because you have internal and external rotations of the leg and like a lot of it. And you have, it's a dynamic coordination. And yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that it's like we say, you know, running the 100 meters and 200 meters in track is good, but it's almost kind of like that. Now you just have to change direction. It's the same idea, but it's right. just formal and yeah. change direction. And I, there's a lot of good to that. I think that's underrated. I agree. Uh, so with when it comes down to you know speed training a skill guy versus the speed training you're doing for alignment like what does that look like in a, a practice i know people will talk about well how often are you going to get up and run like like a like do, do you have your lineman do a fly 10 are they doing some longer stuff in the course of the week i know obviously there's different phases how does that shake out generally from being different than how you work with the skill guys you know, um, a lot of that has to do with the needs of the athletes and the team that you're working with, how long you've been at a certain program, um, how familiar you are with the athletes that you have, and what they've been exposed to in the past. So, for instance, when I first got to Texas Tech, um, it was relatively basic, you know, and then a lot of the stuff that we've since talked about with the profiling and all that, you know, that was three years down the road. So obviously um, coach Jackson hangs his hat on, on, on speed development and, and movement development as well. Um, and again, in my opinion, probably the best in the business at doing so. And we've taken much of a similar approach here. This is our first year at South Carolina. So it's relatively basic. Now that, that, that doesn't mean that it's not comprehensive. It's very comprehensive, but it's not, we're not doing anything we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. You know, you've got a max velocity day and an acceleration day, and we're doing proven drills. You know, wicket runs and high knees on the max velocity days, um, upright wall drills on the max velocity day, um, straight leg skips and straight leg bounds, and on acceleration day, you know, inclined wall drill, resisted sprints, falling starts, kneeling starts. Uh, med ball starts um, just to give you a, a, a sampling of some of the drills we do. So it's not, um, it's very comprehensive. It, uh, it gives you everything, every, the athletes, everything that they need, nothing that they don't. Um, and uh, so across the board, being that speed acceleration is a relatively general skill that everyone needs, we do a lot of the same stuff across the board. Now, that's not to say that it will always be that way. Um, but right now, obviously, as seeing as how we just got here in January, you know, we wanted to make sure that the basic technical models of acceleration and max velocity were, were ingrained correctly, efficiently, um, in order to minimize injuries, 
obviously enhance performance, but but uh, right away minimize injuries um, and so forth. So, with so you were saying with uh, so you're doing pretty much just one. Uh, you're doing one acceleration and one top end a week for the for these big guys. So is, is that changed Correct. at all throughout yeah. the year? Um, are you you do you switch that all, or is it just the methods change, like going from like a sled sprint to a faster sprint, or how does that progress throughout the year for you guys? Uh, well, <laughs> or how was it progressing? I should say how was this, it progressing? This specific year will be unique, right? Like, hopefully, it gets a chance to progress, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I would say that, and I, I can't, you know, speak to what will happen in the summer, but uh, I, I would say that it would probably remain a similar layout and just progress in terms of intensity and distances and velocities and things like that. So just become <clears throat> from... Uh, less advanced to more advanced uh, means of applying the same stressors would would be what I would say. But again, you know that that issue that's hanging over us, I mean, uh, obviously can't be avoided. And the longer layoff we have, uh, still the more basic and the more rudimentary it's going to have to be when we go back. You know, um, which we've discussed uh, as a staff that we've got to be ready to. Um, not get carried away and and you give the athletes the smart dose of of what they need when when they do return yeah yeah right on and i know we'll we'll talk about that in just a, another question down i right. wanted to chat briefly and you mentioned it uh perception reaction work and how that's progressed right. for you uh, i know we, we talked about it about 130 some episodes ago but just getting into right. a little bit of the specifics of what you're doing with that right now or or have been at least through this year <laughs> Right. So um, obviously last year at Texas State, um, the entire training calendar, the summer, uh, as we moved closer to the season, is typically a progression that most people utilize as general to specific. And that's what I believe in as well. So uh, we went from more general drills um, in the winter, again, uh, being that we just arrived there to more specific drills in the summer. Um, and uh, again, it's not, there's a rhyme and a reason and a progression to that as well. So it's not simply just putting them out there and having them play tag, you know, it is, um, coordinated. It's based off of the movements that they utilize as part of their position. So understanding what they're asked to do, um, based on their position and then following a logical progression. So initially, yes, those movements are closed right in a predictable environment working on just the biomechanical execution of those movements so if i'm a running back say for instance you know a specific type of cut um that 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 i'm going to make to try to evade a defender yeah initially you might work on closed cuts you know and then that that's a predictable response all right and then you just simply start layering layering on uh, um and adjusting the environment so you might have that same predictive rea predictable reaction, excuse me, um, to a or uh, a <clears throat> reactive component to that response, right? So maybe I know that it's going to be a cut right or left, but now I'm running up to um, a coach and he's pointing right or left or or moving right or left would be probably be better. It's a little more authentic 
Um, so it's still a predictable response. I, for the most part, know what I'm going to do. But now there is a little bit more uncertainty, a little bit more um, unpredictability. And then you would go to instead of a predictable reactive component where I know where the coach is. I know he's either going to lean right or left, right? I, I'm reacting, but for the most part, it's still predictable. Now, I've still got my predictable response, but you just make the reactive component more and more unpredictable. Now, it's a moving target. Um, now, it's a moving target, um, moving right or left, moving forward, back. You know, it's a little bit more unpredictable. So, I still know what my response is going to be. The, the movement skill that I've been working on, now the the – reactive components a little bit more unpredictable and then you just start to uh progress by making your movements unpredictable now it's an unpredictable uh stimulus and i've got to as sean likes to say right fit my key to the lock now instead of just this type of cut now i've got I've been working on multiple movement solutions. Now I've got to decide which one best fits this unpredictable reactive component that I'm facing, right? And you can see that this is a logical progression, right? It just moves from more predictable to less predictable. So now I've got a unpredictable stimulus um, that I've got to match my movement solution to. Um, and so now it, it could be a defender that's moving around and now it might not only be this type of cut, I might need to utilize a jump cut rather than just a power cut or something like that. But they're all skills that I've been working on. I got to find the right one for the unpredictable solution. Then you just start to integrate that into more real life situations. All right. Closer to the sport. It might be adding bodies. It might be manipulating the, the area. All right. Or the space that the drill is in. It might be manipulating the rules of the drill, you know, with or without a ball or, um, you know, the task, the desired task of the drill, depending on the position. And then you gradually start to, to integrate that into the sport. So one-on-ones, seven-on-seven, and then ultimately into 11-on-11. 11 11, and hopefully I've become better at cutting, you know. So as you can see, it's, it's, it's logical and it's, it's progressive and, and, you know. And a lot of times it's, it's – I – and I don't reinvent the wheel. You know, a lot of times I stole drills from excellent coaches I've been around. So Nick Whitworth, our special teams coordinator at Texas State, phenomenal um, coach. And some of his special teams drills were fantastic. You know, most guys play on special teams. It's a area of the game with a lot of perception and reaction, moving in space, fitting in space. Um, maneuvering and manipulating yourself around bodies. So, you know, uh, him and I would meet and watch film and, and come up with drills like that. And, and so I know this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but I know people want to know, well, how do you even go about designing drills? Like, what is the progression? Well, I, I just gave it to you, and it's not mm -hmm. rocket science. You know, it's just logical thought and understanding of the drill. So as far as this year, being as how we only had the winter, right here at South Carolina. So um, we worked primarily on those closed um, movement, enhancing movement skills as we should. We incorporated some reactive components, um, both verbally and visually, uh, where the athlete had to utilize those skills that we were enhancing in 
with reactive components that were a little more predictable, whether it be auditory cues or visual cues um, to to ingrain and enhance the skills that we had been working. And obviously, um, that's as far as we made it. We had spring ball and now we're in this pandemic. But, uh, you know, I'll be excited to see um, where we go from here. Yeah, I I mean, I know you said it was a long-winded answer, but I think that was fully necessary because there's a lot of, you really just laid out your whole system there in a simple way. And I it makes it easy for me to comprehend. And it makes it also easy to think about in the sense that, I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody who, uh, I don't work with football and I don't are really, really field sports for that matter. And so my, I only have a rudimentary knowledge of just what perception reaction type work is, but the way you laid it out makes a lot of sense. And I like, I like the idea too, that really the ultimate work, you know, think about one V ones or one V twos or it, but the ultimate is just looking at, like you said, what, what's the coach doing? Like once you get to that full, that full perceptive and reactive end, it's kind of like, well, what what's the coach doing and how can I mirror that without like, you know, the ball or, you know, obviously sticking with the yeah. rules. Right. Like it's kind of like the same thing, but with with different right. constraints, you aren't using the game right. implements, if, if you will. Right. And and obviously, too, the need for these type of drills is more or less necessary based off of what the f- football coaches are doing. Right. Like so um, if you have a f- excellent football staff that's designing phenomenal drills a lot of this is part of that so you might do it as well but you may want to focus on more general abilities or stuff that they're not getting which i would you know advocate for right like why be redundant but let's say you're somewhere where the football drills consist of just running over bags you know and and that's quote unquote you know football specific work well they may need it a little bit more at a, in a situation like that you know so um that's that's where you you've got to kind of think outside the box you can't just blindly apply your system um you, you've got to give the athletes what they need at the end of the day right we we can't um we can't just be hell-bent on applying exactly what's on the paper we got to evaluate our situation and know all right you know, this is what I did last year. This is a different situation. They need more of this, less of that um, in concert with what's going on at sport practice with the football coaches or the basketball coaches or whatever they're doing. Right. Because it's one whole. It's one piece. It's not. That's why I love track and field so much. Like we were talking off air. It's the, it's, it's one thing. Right. It's one thing. And so and, and that's how we are, too. We're just all one piece of the pie though we're each experts in our specific field, the better we can understand each other's specialties, whether it be athletic training, whether it be nutrition, whether it be obviously the sport itself, um, the better we'll all be as a whole. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, it really makes me think a lot about... This uh, I was I was just doing a podcast with um, it'll go out after this one goes out, but with Matt Jordan, uh, strength coach from Canada, and he was talking about one of the topics of that show coming up was just reducing the noise and the redundancy that comes up when you know there's a lot of different there's different um, you know hands in this making the soup so to speak, and it sounds right. like with the way you're talking, it's like look this line between strength coach and sport coach is not. It's actually a closer entity than I think that we we're all kind of working on the same right. thing. We really need to understand each other right. in that. Right. Well, so for instance, last year um, 
the special teams coach I mentioned, Nick and I, he basically was able to start at a more advanced stage um, with the players in special teams education because I had already done a lot of the introductory type drills that he was planning on doing. So he was able to manipulate his practice plan and work on different things or start the athletes at a more advanced stage um, because they had already been exposed to a lot of stuff, you know. Now, uh, again, that's a unique situation. Like I said, if, if, if you have a football staff that's doing those type of things and creating quality drills like, like we do here at South Carolina, unbelievable, phenomenal staff that I'm fortunate to work with and for, then you should focus on more general output-oriented parameters, um, speed, strength, power. You know, Why wouldn't you? Because that's what they need. That's what they're not getting. That's what they're not going to get at football practice. So that might take up, uh, as it does here, more of a lion's share of what you're doing because that's where they need to get better. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. So it's just it's different situations call for different measures. But the more you can understand the big picture, regardless, the better. Yeah, it's it's that a thought of everyone. The more everyone can work out of that same playbook, so to speak, the better. Like because I think, right. it, it, you know, it's it's the idea that, you know, with, with global global dynamics of coaching or the idea that we're all working out of the same page, like we all have the same vision, the same idea where we all need to be headed. And I, I don't think that's I think there's a lot of situations where that isn't the case. And so it's. It's right. really cool to see how that can manifest itself. And I, and I think a lot of people are doing really good stuff that can really keep pushing that forward, especially in that perception reaction space. You were, I like um, what you were saying too, Scott, and just all the way back to the beginning about, cause I've, I've had discussions on this podcast before. You have like this spectrum, right? You got the, the coaching, the, the movement, like linearly, like, you know, technique change of direction versus on the other end, you know, just let the situation dictate. And you have a spectrum where you start on the one end, but then you end up on the other end. And I think regardless of, and again, my knowledge, I have no practical experience in, in that transition. And so, you know, for me, it's just observation and talking to smart coaches and people who are in the trenches in that realm, like yourself. But it, I, I, my thought is, as you're talking about that is it is at the, at the very least. And I think it's, it's, you know, at the very least, it's a good opportunity to see all the ways that people will solve the problem. It's like you, like you said, a jump cut, you know, just these different types of cuts, because if you only did perception, I don't know if you would really familiarize yourself as much with maybe some of those different in, in you know routes if that makes sense. And and sometimes those movement skills need to be done more correctly, right? You might have a guy that chooses the right solution but can't execute that solution, you know? Now, on the flip side of that, just because he can execute it around a cone doesn't mean he can execute it, you know, in an unpredictable situation, but that's why you work both ends. You know, like you got a great decision maker that can't move properly. Well, you got to get him to move properly, right? <laughs> Correctly. You got a guy that moves great, can't make decisions. Well, you know, he, he better become a better decision maker with uh, more reactive qualities. So, you know, again, like you said, uh, uh, and I've never really described it like that, but it's a spectrum, you know, and I, and I love that analogy. And, and that's really what it is. Yeah, it's a hard 
it's a hard thing to quantify 100%, right? Like your your decision-making ability as 80 and your movement ability is, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not like lifting weights and force no. profiling. It's There's a lot no. more complexity to that. But it's, right. it's that's an interesting right. concept, yeah, of putting it that right. way. I like that. Right. So, Scott, I, I wanted to, this is kind of the big bread and butter question. I think this is going to resonate across all sports of people who are getting athletes after right. a long layoff. And that's, uh, yeah, training athletes who've had a long layoff and, and getting them ready to right. play in a short period of time. And I know you've had experience before all this in like athletes who had had that situation. So, could you ex- explain a little bit about uh, your take on getting athletes ready to play again quickly? Right. Yeah. So, this, this is kind of unique scenario that that you and I had discussed off air but um so basically and this this honestly will resonate not only in our current situation of bringing athletes back after a long layoff but really anybody that seeks to use technology um in, in a practical manner um in my opinion and so when I was at Cal um we had a, our starting running back at the time um this was 2015 our starting running back at the time he ended up going on to get drafted by the New Orleans Saints and and having a pro career and it all ended up turning out well for him but that spring um right about now actually he contracted some type of weird virus that left him hospitalized um missed a bunch of time couldn't work out for um uh, a number of months lost a significant amount of body weight obviously thereby losing a significant amount of strength and power and obviously was not able to stay active and lost pretty much you name the ability um lost a significant amount of it and then reported to summer cleared and obviously in eight weeks or whatever we had um had to be ready for football training camp you know now this year we may not even get (laughs) eight weeks god willing we get six but this is the closest I've experienced to what we're going through now. An athlete that basically had fallen off um, and here he was needing to improve in every area, strength, power, speed, as well as gain body weight, as well as get back into shape and improving his work capacity, um, as well as be ready to play football, which is the boat that a lot of our guys are going to be in when we get them back. So, um, Basically, it was an integration of three different methods of technology. So GPS, tracking his player load or his external load, what what he does on the field. And we had uh, Brett Huth, who was one of the other assistants there. He's the head guy, Incarnate Word, now probably in my book, one of the best, smartest coaches um, in the country and excellent with GPS. So we had outstanding um, GPS markers as far as where he should be. Uh, the running back should be relative to training camp, right? Um, we wanted to get him to where no low, no player load that he would experience in training camp would be over 150% of what we'd exposed him to in the summer. And that's based off of research. That That's basically the threshold for reducing injury risk, all right? So that's his external load. Internal load, we utilized uh, polar uh, <clears throat> heart rate monitors, obviously, taking a look at his internal load, um, both as a means of seeing, is he getting in better shape? Is he tolerating those external loads at a lower heart rate, which would indicate that he's getting in better shape, but also as a means for regulating rest periods within the conditioning sessions. So um, I would 
auto-regulate, I guess you would say, the conditioning sessions based off of his heart rate. As long as he was in the parameters that we had set forth, that, that he was good to go, he would take the rep. Um, when he was not within those parameters, uh, based off of the goal of the session, he would sit out a rep. And over the course of the summer, obviously, he, he would hope that he would sit out less reps and take more reps, um, thereby increasing his external load and, uh, and concurrently with his improved ability to tolerate internal load. And then lastly, we used um, a we had the good fortune at the time of having a force plate from Sparta, and I utilized that to ensure that his external output his strength, his power, um, his eccentric and concentric rate of force development, his ability to apply force, um, his impulse, his ability to imply, apply force efficiently and um, productively, that those abilities improved as well because obviously coming off of that long layoff, he, he had gotten weaker, he had gotten less explosive, less powerful as a running back. That was his game, right? Was, so we had to get his output back up and we needed a way to manage, measure that and monitor that uh, outside of obviously maxing out on this and that all the time exercise wise uh, was not an option and, and as well as not being as specific to what we're asking him to do. So uh, I tested him on the force plate regularly in conjunction with the GPS and the heart rate monitoring with a goal of creating a concert between the three modalities so that he could increase his out his force production uh, and an external output measured by the force plate um, with increasing external loads measured by the GPS with greater internal tolerance measured with the heart rate monitoring um, with the goal of keeping him healthy and resilient, auto-regulating his training and getting him back to um, where he could be successful on the field, which he was. Um, like I said, ended up getting drafted and going on and being a productive player for us that year. And um, obviously, a lot went into it, but uh, that's the closest I've ever been to what we're about to experience. So, you know, I try to lean on that and, and think about that as as a guide to what may happen down the road. Yeah, that's really valuable information for you know, pretty much anybody who's going to be getting athletes back and they have X amount of time to prepare them. And so I would like to get into each of those uh, pieces of equipment that you were using and maybe through talking about them a little bit, it might be good too, because someone who might not have all that technology, maybe there's still some principles that they can, you know, the basic principle behind it, I think that will be very useful when trying to get people back. And so uh, maybe the, so the player load, you're saying that, what was, can you go into the the 150% again? Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So, so basically um, the player load is a value that, that basically to oversimplify is the external load that the body is going through, whether it be through that football practice, um, whether it be through that conditioning workout. It's basically the external stress placed on the body. And um, it's basically you want whatever load you apply, or in that case, we wanted whatever load we applied to him by the end of the summer had to be within, uh, had to be situated at, at a level uh, high enough so that he would never experience uh, a load during practice that was more than 50% more than, than what he experienced in our conditioning sessions. Um, and that would put him into with the research we had at the time, an area that um, we understood to be 
get him across the threshold of being less of a risk factor um, for injury. So, so if you, so for example, if you're, I, mean, I don't know what the player, but let's say the player load and the conditioning was a hundred, then they couldn't do more than 150 for practice basically, or something like that. Or yeah, but or really the other way around the other way. So like if they did, you know, just like you said, just picking arbitrary numbers, like if it was 150 at practice, yeah, it had to be over a hundred in training. Otherwise he wouldn't be, uh, significantly or, or prepared for what he was oh, about to undergo and would be at a higher risk of injury correct got it so so he needed to be at least 100 because if you did like 75 then it's not going to be enough to to prepare it's not going to be enough he's not going to be prepared yeah he would be too overloaded by by the demands of practice so it's it's basically just the acute to chronic load ratio right which we all know that that that's basically um a term I should have used earlier. I don't know why it slipped my mind, but that's basically all it is, is you want to make sure that they've experienced a load within striking distance of that, which they're going to be exposed to at practice. You know, the acute to chronic ratio. If, if, if chronically um, they've not been exposed to a high enough load and then acutely you raise that load too high, that's when injuries happen. Yeah. So, when you were so to get to that load, that's where the heart rate come in came in. So would, would this be in conditioning? Well, so or you practice? had to, yeah. So you had you had to make sure that internally he was tolerating those loads, right? So, um, and that's where the heart rate monitoring comes in. So you can expose somebody to an external physical load, and they can physically do that, but how are they handling it? Like, is it smashing them? Like, is is he, you know? 200 beats per minute the entire you know 180 beats per minute the entire workout and he's just crushed but yeah he did he did that workout but he didn't tolerate it you know he didn't it wasn't productive so obviously uh, and depending on what your bioenergetic goals were for that workout you may have not addressed them properly so uh, again it was the the goal with the heart rate monitoring was twofold it was to number one make sure that whatever energy system we were trying to develop to develop got developed and he didn't just we didn't just smash him trying to get to some magic number of player load right and also as a means of auto regulating all right you know if i want him to be in this specific heart rate zone all right he's going to need to take this rep off you know and and over the course of the summer as he got in better shape uh, uh, to use a more generic term, he was able to tolerate those increasing external loads, which were increasing, not linearly, obviously undulating, which is, you know, we could talk for 50 minutes on periodization, but over time, gradually, um, in an undulating manner, increasing, um, to the point where we would be within the, the target zone of player load, he had to be able to tolerate those internally. And, and the heart rate was a means for that. What was what was about the heart rate that he'd have to get down to before he could make the rep that you guys had? You know, it 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 all depended on what energy system we were working on. You know, so obviously when a lot of when you're doing work capacity training, which is what we use the heart rate monitoring for, because you know, obviously if you're doing speed training, then it's pretty much full recovery and and you know yeah he'd wear one for that too but that's a little less complicated it just depended on what energy system we were working you know if it was an aerobic training session making sure that his heart rate stayed um aerobic if it was a anaerobic training session making sure that 
his heart rate dropped low enough before the next rep to the point where he was recovering so that the next rep could also be explosive in quality um, rather than, as I mentioned earlier, just slogging through the reps, chasing a certain volume uh, with low quality and an exceedingly high heart rate. Yeah, that's, that's not football, right? What yeah. is football? Football is explosive play, brief rest, another explosive play. So it's it's like I always say, if 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 you know you just torture your athletes and they just slog through low quality reps, then that's great. They're going to be able to endure a longer, more severe butt whipping than the next guys, but they're not going to. Um, you know, they're not going to impose their will on your opponent. That's what it's about is not only enduring, but um, thriving, you know. So obviously you want your athletes to be able to be explosive, quick rest, come back and be explosive again. So you want to make sure, as I mentioned, that he's recovering enough that each rep could be high quality. Yeah, it sounds like the the heart rate and probably to an extent the GPS is more that was uh, putting a, a good measure on the bioenergetic and just the physiology. But then the force play is probably more like the track in the nervous system, right? To see what you're Correct. doing with like maybe Correct. the weights and stuff like that. Right, because exactly. So if he's, you know, let's say the other two are in place, that means that um, he's exposed to enough um, volume and, and low external loading and internal loading volume wise, um, to be able to withstand a practice. Right. But like we just talked about, that doesn't ensure that he's going to be any good. Right. It just means that he's in shape to, he can withstand the practice and he's been exposed to enough that he should be able to make it through the practice. Great. But if he sucks, he's not the player that he was, then it doesn't matter, right? Like he's got to be high output as well. So the force plate and specifically the the, the Sparta one measures eccentric uh, rate of force development or stopping ability, uh, concentric rate of force development or acceleration uh, uh, and change of direction ability, and then impulse. So force over time, you know, their ability to produce a uniform, uh, efficient force over a specific range of motion and, and a specific time period. So all of those go into being a high output, uh, not only healthy and efficient athlete, but an effective athlete, right? So I wanted to make sure that this running back was going to be explosive and be his former self output-wise. You know, this is a guy that went to the combine and had over an 11 foot broad jump and was the top broad jump by a running back for however many years it was at the time and had a 40 inch vert and ran a, you know, he was either a high four, four or a low four, five forty. So, I mean, he, he was a effective athlete and we wanted to make sure that we weren't just getting him in shape, that we were able to return him to those outputs as well as remember, put weight back on him. Too. So that's my main point in all of this isn't isn't to say um, and, and yes, all of that, you know, was basically dictated and was enhanced by his weight room work and and plyometrics and and, you know, sprinting and, and the high output. That was the high output end. 
like I said, making sure he was effective um, and efficient. But my point in saying all of this isn't to say that like how smart I was or what what great technology we had. But the main point here is that we had to, we had to get so many different things better in a short period of time. You know, if you just had to get someone in shape in four weeks, we could all get someone in shape in four weeks, right? J- just that. He just has to be in shape in four weeks. Great. But if you're saying, okay, in a certain amount of time, they've got to get stronger, faster, more explosive, um, stay healthy, uh, uh, get in better shape, all of these things in a short period of time. Well, now it's, 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 it takes a little more skill and manipulation. So, and I, and obviously he's, he's, you know, it's not like he was a, a bad athlete that turned into a freak. I mean, he, the, the man upstairs is the reason why he did what he did, but, um, it was our, we did definitely utilize technology to get him back to himself in a short period of time after, uh, uh, the closest thing I've ever seen to what we're going through now with kids in various states of ability to maintain what the, their athletic abilities. Yeah, right on. Uh, what, one quick follow-up question with that is, you know, there's so many qualities to improve in a short period of time. And you, you obviously were doing work in the weight room, but how was the proportion of the weight room work comp- uh, relative to everything else? You know, like if you have to have all these field qualities, you have to get better. And you like, was there any sort of distribution that was altered? It was pretty much the same ratio, just way more monitored and, and make sure you're. Uh, I would say, I would say the same ratio um, and just as you mentioned, more monitored and auto-regulated because that's the thing is that that's, if that's your program, then that's what you deem a healthy athlete should be able to do on his way to playing football, right? It's like return to play. In my opinion, the, the, the goal and the progression is normal training, right? Because that's what you've deemed as the threshold for being able to play your sport. Well, then that's the threshold that they should have to pass through, Right. So that's going to be the basis for the athlete on his way back. If I've got this wild and crazy program that looks nothing like what everyone else is doing. Well, if it's so great, why aren't the other guys doing it? You know what I mean? And that's not to say it shouldn't be individualized, but that's to say if that's what what you think is best, then that is um, the gate that the athlete should have to pass through. So, yes, it was the same ratio, just way more monitored, way more um, auto-regulated, way more evaluated and and closely monitored so that we were um, putting the right amount of everything. It's like it's like uh, cooking, right? It's like following a recipe. I can eyeball a tablespoon or I can actually measure out a tablespoon, right? It's probably going to taste relatively the same, but one – um, is guaranteed to be exactly what you want. Right. And so, you know, I just kind of came up with that analogy, but yes, it was (laughs) the same program, just way more monitored. I like it. Yeah. Well, and hopefully people, even people who don't have all those, that equipment, there's still the ideas and concepts ring very true and I'm sure it can go a long way. Scott, man, we got time for one last question here. And so I know you've written some articles and done a lot of work, force velocity profiling, Uh, Could you share a little bit about that and then how that's translating into the work you're doing with linemen? Right. Yeah. So um, specifically um, in the past, as you mentioned, at Texas Tech, it became a piece of what we did primarily and specifically with some of our higher end athletes, as well as pro day slash combine guys. 
Um, and uh, I primarily utilized um, the my sprint app, my jump app, um, you know, as well as some of the spreadsheets that JB Marin had, had been gracious enough to share. Um, this year was the first year that I actually had my pro day guys um, profile on on the 1080, which was interesting um, because that's a, a piece of equipment that I've always been a fan of, but never really had a chance to play with much. Um, but uh, along those lines, and this is something that Les Spellman and, and Cam Joss and I um, talked about a week or so is uh, a week or so ago on Zoom, is that um, specifically this year I had a lot of linemen. Uh, in my in my pro day crew and, and over the last couple of years more and more linemen and um, without even without profiling them typically there's a trend um, and that is linemen typically struggle to produce sufficient horizontal force um, specifically in the way that they sprint or accelerate in regards to the force velocity profiling you would say that their um, RF or ratio of force um, is not where what it needs to be that means that they're not directing enough force horizontally in order to accelerate efficiently right from the start, um, as well as potentially DRF, which is the decrease in ratio of force, meaning that they produce um, a, a lion's share of vertical force too soon when they should be producing more horizontal force deeper into the sprint. Um, and Typically, when people hear, oh, he needs force, it doesn't make sense because linemen, of course, are strong. They can squat. They can deadlift. They can clean. So what do you mean they need force? Well, number one, obviously, when you talk about sprinting or jumping, it's always relative to body weight. They're heavier athletes, right? So they need more force, even if you think they're strong. But also, when we talk about sprinting, it's horizontal force, which people tend to forget just because a guy's strong. Those are all vertical movements. Um, he needs to produce horizontal force, which incorporates the concept of mobility, right? Being able to get into certain positions that can direct the force more horizontally, um, as well as being powerful enough and, and stable enough relative to body weight to hold those positions. Um, and this is where in a situation with like a 1080 sprint or even sled sprints, you know, we've talked about the heavier sleds, the lighter sleds, being able to increase horizontal force. And um, to me, how it basically plays out is when you talk about individualizing, pretty much every lineman is going to test as force deficient. So rather than a force group or a velocity group, um, you know, what you really have is a RF group or a DRF group. So for instance, a RF group would need heavier resisted sprints, um, which would allow them to work on producing a greater ratio of force horizontally, uh, a steeper body lean, if you will, more horizontal directed force um, via a heavier load initially in the sprint. And then your DRF group could benefit from that's where your lighter loads would come in allowing them to get past initial acceleration into the transition and cue them to continue to produce force horizontally into a deeper, uh, a deeper portion of their sprint. It's interesting with alignment. Yeah. Like, well, first you were saying that they were forced, typically force deficient, which is interesting because like you said, like they could squat and, and deadlift and they're strong. Right. So that's, that's interesting that they're showing up as force deficient. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's again, it's horizontal force. 
they 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 have that force they have that engine they just need to be taught and so that's why earlier in our conversation we talked about the benefit of teaching linemen the skill of sprinting we talked about how at south carolina we teach our linemen how to accelerate we teach our linemen how to transition and run at maximum at maximum velocity that's obviously a skill and a lot of times all it really takes um, and and sleds and, and resist, resisted sprints are just some means of doing that uh, uh, that have been popularized. But all it really takes a lot of times is taking that horsepower, that engine, and improving the athlete's skill of accelerating closer to the technical model, their skill of transitioning and running at maximal velocity um, in order to take that engine, that horsepower, and direct it down into the field, uh, down into the track horizontally, which will result in, in, in faster sprint times. I guess in thinking about the lineman's job, and I, I don't have my football experience uh, actually playing outside of just, I mean, never competitively played, just, you know, touch football and all this stuff, games you play growing up as kids. But from my understanding, a, a lineman, really in a typical game, it's just, it's one step and you're kind of pushed up, right? Like if you look at the shins hat do in a game, right? But they usually aren't going to take, I mean, they, an average play, they're not going to actually run more than a couple meters, right? Or I guess it depends on who you Typically, are. Yeah. Right, right. So Typically. maybe just because of the nature of the game, that that's why those guys are like that. To, and they just don't have that much experience right. running with those shin angles and the, I don't know, I'm just, well, I'm well, just curious. Yeah. Well, well, also, so the uh, alignment, low to alignment is broken at the hip, right? Butt down, hips low, broken at the hip. That's, that's alignment getting low. And so that's why, um, when we do our technique work with the linemen, specifically for sprinting, um, I tell them, look, this is this is for for this next bit of time, you're a sprinter. All right. You're you're not we're not playing offensive line here or, or defensive line. We're we're sprinting. Knowing that obviously it's all got to translate back to their position, but again, we're trying to overload their motor output, right? We're trying to make their CNS more robust. We're trying to actually increase their horsepower, their velocity. So uh, they're not used to that power line or line of extension coming out of their stance. They're used to dropping their hips and keeping their feet um, very choppy in nature rather than, than smooth and forceful. It's, it's broken at the hip. It's butt down. It's choppy because you want your cleats in the ground. Right. In order to um, move somebody or not get moved myself, I've got to have cleats in the ground. Right. I'm not worried about um, making my body cover the most amount of distance in one in, in with each step, um, because I've got to worry about combat. I've got to worry about someone in front of me, someone to each side of me. And that's where, you know, like we talked about earlier with the perception, action and the awareness. And, and that's where all that comes in. But spe specifically in terms of running your 40 or increasing the motor output of of sprinting for alignment getting them to feel that position of total body lean hips extended um smooth power line and so forth and so on that skill um really enhances their ability to produce that horizontal force because they've got it like like we said they can squat they're strong um they just need to be taught to orient it uh in the correct direction and with the correct coordination in, in order to make it show up 
in in those sprinting endeavors. Um, Les shared a story about Quinn and Williams with me from Alabama, um, who he ran like a five two or something, and and you know ended up running a four eight, I believe. And it was just it wasn't that he got that much stronger or that much more powerful. It was just learning the skill of orienting force horizontally. Yeah, I love it, man. It seems to just learning that skill is probably nice. It's a nice compliment to the typical, like you said, they're typically cleats on the ground, short choppy step, steps. It's a, probably a great neural compliment to be able to get up and right. move a little more than roll athletes, I'm sure. Awesome, Scott. Well, hey, it was a great chat today. It was awesome sitting down with you. And I know a lot of these, especially the, the talk about um, just coming back and the with the getting athletes get ready to go after a layoff, it's going to be really uh, helpful and, and poignant with the upcoming uh, challenges that a lot of coaches are going to be facing. And um, yeah, man, front to back, I learned a ton from you today. So thanks for being on. My pleasure, Joel. Thank you. All right, that does it for another show. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, remember, 20% off in our store at JustFlySports.com with the code PODCAST200 for all books and webinars. <clears throat> all right, we'll see you guys on the flip side next week with another great guest. As always, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're tuning in, listening on. We would definitely appreciate that. And also our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, has been a longtime sponsor of this show with a great blog, amazing web store. So be sure to support them and check out what they are doing. We will catch you guys next week. Have a good one.